Welcome to Engineering Stories, a podcast presented and produced by Silver Fox and the Institute of Engineering and Technology. This week's guest is Amelia Gould. Amelia is currently Portfolio Director at BAE Systems, having begun her career in the Royal Navy as a weapons engineering officer. Amelia shares stories from this time as well as her 22-month trip sailing from Portsmouth to Sydney. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hello and welcome to Engineering Stories. I'm Alex and I'm the head of R&D at Silver Fox. I'm an electrical and electronic engineering graduate from the University of Bath and alongside we have my co-host Connor Maringolo. Hi, I'm Connor Maringolo and I'm an electronic and communications engineering student from the University of Kent, recently graduated and I'm going to be joining Airbus Defence and Space as a robotic systems engineer. And with us today we have Amelia Gould. Amelia, can you introduce yourself please? Yeah, hi. Hi to you both. I'm uh, Amelia Gould. I am a portfolio director at BAE Systems in the maritime sector. Fantastic. So you're, uh, you talked about your title being portfolio director. That's a very, for me anyway, as a student, that's a very unique title. I just wanted to kind of know what uh, kind of responsibilities that in- involves. It is. Well, my full, my full title is I'm actually the uh, combat systems director um, oh, which, normally people, <laughs> which normally makes people think, wow, what's a combat system? Um, but sometimes people don't understand what that means. So my, uh, I, I run a technology uh, portfolio business. The portfolio just means that it has lots and lots of projects mm. in it. So I ran about, there's 100 different projects running contracts all the way across the life cycle from really early R&D uh, through design, development, manufacture. We support uh, the Royal Navy and our equipment in service, all the way through to the, right at the end of the life cycle dispo- disposal, depending mm. on what the Royal Navy ends up doing with their ships, uh, where they're right at the end of their lives working out what to do, whether they take equipment off or if they sell them to another nation. Uh, so the portfolio is just a way of capturing that complete breadth uh, of you contracts have and things that I have. <laughs> uh, and then the combat system bit is about what we do, which is effectively uh, turning a ship into a warship Mm. Uh, so making a steel hull into a thing that is able to um, fight or do the things that, mm. that the government needs to do and deliver effect, really. So what made you walk into that kind of position then? Obviously, not every, not, not every child when they wake up every morning goes, <laughs> I want to be a combat system director. Like, <laughs> what, what kind of drew you mm. into that? So like most children, I probably never heard of it. Um, I think what drew me into is a love of the sea. Uh, so even though I grew up uh, on the east end of London, kind of on a farm in the middle of nowhere, um, I always really loved water and being on the water. Uh, and I remember once uh, going to one of those village fates and the sea cadets were there and they had a stall uh, and they mm. said, oh, come and learn to sail for 50p a week. And I thought, well, that sounds like a good thing to do. So I sort of signed up. Uh, and my uh, father thought it was wonderful that I'll go and do something um, actually a bit different and interesting and so started going along to sea cadets mainly to learn to sail mm. uh, but for the sea cadets is it's not connected to the navy but you still sort of wear a uniform and, and do things with the navy and through that I got introduced to the Royal Navy uh, and what they do um, and that took me into when I was doing my A-levels and things and looking for how to go to university I needed a sponsorship to be able to afford to go to university so I applied mm-hmm. to various companies for sponsorships including the Royal Navy uh, and they decided to offer me a sponsorship for university and, and say the rest is history so it wasn't really a design it was more I wanted to learn to sail 
join the sea cadets, learn how to wear a uniform. And it just and fell march. into place, kind of yeah. thing. And, and and that led on from one thing to another. So, what's what's involved in in a Royal Navy University scholarship? What 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 are the requirements? Uh, so I did. What's the requirements to get it? Or to get it and to keep it and to. So at uh, the time when I did it, it was very, very hotly contested because they used to take a lot of uh, the called university cadets. Um, but then because of money and the cost of things, they'd narrowed it down. So in fact, in my year, there were only four places uh, awarded. Wow. So it was highly competitive. I had to go and do a three-day admiralty interview board um, to you know, go through all the psychometric testing, exam, written exams, but a lot of sort of leadership quality testing, a lot of things mm-hmm. the Navy tests for is not just... Um, who you are and what you do, but what what the potential they see in you for becoming uh, an officer and, and what they might do and how you'd integrate into that. Uh, and as I say, in the end, there were four of us um, who got the scholarships on the year that I went. And then when I was at university and then, you know, my gap year effectively after A-levels, I joined the Navy, uh, went to Britannia Royal Naval College in Dartmouth, wow. uh, where I learned to march and polish shoes and tie knots and and do all the things you do in in basic naval training. Uh, Went to sea on my first uh, ship, you know, as an officer cadet to learn all about life at sea. And at the end of the year, I then joined my university in the September to start my engineering degree, uh, and which meant while I was doing my engineering degree, I was effectively a a paid naval officer in in the Navy. And every holiday, I uh, had to go and, and rejoin the Navy and spend time at sea. But Thankfully, I was attached to a ship that was doing quite interesting deployments. I got to go to the Caribbean and oh, uh, it's a hard life, America. Yeah. So whereas uh, a lot of my university friends were sort of trying to get jobs in uh, McDonald's and supermarkets and things, I was going off and seeing the world through my university holidays, which was fantastic. I, I, bet, I bet you didn't tell it like that, though. I bet you were like, <laughs> oh, no, I'm away. <laughs> I did. I said, gosh, it's going to be really hard. I've got three months in the Mediterranean on an aircraft carrier. <laughs> Um, so were you part of the university royal navy unit then yeah yeah i was i I, said i wouldn't be part because they're um that's obviously different to actually be being joining the being Mm -hmm. in the navy so i did go along some of their events but that's a different uh institution to what i was doing um you joined the navy and now you're in base systems would you recommend to kind of seek out sponsorships and then work your way through that. A lot of people obviously directly um, just join university and then see where it goes, if you get what I mean. What would you say to people that is kind of thinking about it right now? My little brother, for example, he's thinking about engineering. What would you say to people that are just thinking? I would definitely recommend thinking about maybe not necessarily sponsorship, but at least industrial placements or experience Mm -hmm. or that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. I think what... I mean, certainly when I was applying for university, I knew I wanted to be an engineer, but I had no idea what type of engineer. You know, mm-hmm. I did physics, maths and chemistry at A-level. You know, I kind of knew vaguely what I was interested at, but you look through these university perspectives and between you know, electrical and mechanical and all the different engineering breaths, I had no idea. It's intimidating. What it yeah. is, and it's overwhelming, um, and you worry that you're going to pick the wrong one and then you'll be stuck with it. Yeah. Um, so there was almost two choices I made. There was one that I was looking for a somewhere that did a general engineering uh, degree where I could try lots of different ones and work out where I was good at. And then the other thing was through the sponsorship was to try and apply that engineering to sort of 
actually not just about learn about it, but work out, can I do it? Because yeah, it's all yeah. very well being able to write the essays and do the things, but actually the can engineering yeah. is all about, can you think like an engineer? Can you apply it? Um, and so I think doing an industrial placement or a sponsorship or an apprenticeship or anything like that helps adjust you yourself to say, is this the right thing? Am yeah. I interested in it? Does it excite me? So that's what I would recommend, absolutely, because to, to try and hone. And, and I ended up having that. You know, I started doing a general engineering degree. I discovered I was completely useless at mechanical engineering, you know, failed my first year mechanical engineering exam, had no idea why bridges stood up, you know, couldn't resolve <laughs> forces for the life of me. Yeah. Um, but yet discovered I was really good at computing, you know, and yeah. I'd never programmed in my life. I wasn't one of those kids who, you know, had a computer in their room. Uh, yeah. But my tutor said, you know, Look, I think you should drop mechanical and do uh, and take up computing. Uh, and I did because the only way I could stay in university and and again completely discovered I was really good at computing which I'd never have known what what languages did you learn back um uh, like when you went to uni I'm just curious <laughs> you said back then I didn't say that <laughs> I didn't say that I just wanted to know because back it back in you, back in the time back in your day <laughs> you, you, such a surprise that they even were computers <laughs> I'm not. I'm, hey, I'm not suggesting there was binary numbers. I'm not saying it was like coding I binary. Agree. I just know that there, um, in our university, we've only there are just fashionable languages. Changed. I think it's fair to yeah. say there are fashionable yeah, languages. Yeah. I I know. So that it there... is fair to say, having <laughs> having teased you about it, it is fair to say that computing. I mean, this was what the late '90s. Computing was kind of just coming into. In fact, I went back to my university the other day, and whereas we remember the computer science department being a kind of tiny little. Um, brick house tagged onto the engineering department it's now got this massive brand new building you know I remember going into this little you know townhouse basically to do my computing stuff and, and it's great but now but at the time it was definitely it was there and it was coming but it wasn't as big as it is now mm -hmm. um, and you know we did Java and C and those yeah. sorts of things you know I, I hate C I mean, it, not, hasn't not quite, it hasn't changed it hasn't changed not then. quite mainframe language but interestingly why I say that I um I actually ended up specializing in FPGA so I ended up oh, I did FPGAs. end up writing machine code and things yeah. like that because I end up developing stuff for FPGAs going back to your career in the navy back in those olden times as, as, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I did not uh, say that I did not say oh. that. <laughs> where, where I'm sure Connor thinks wooden ships were still used um, what was it like being a female officer to be honest I mean the Navy was um, is a great leveler the beauty about again being in the armed forces is um, everybody has a very specific role um, and regardless of what sex you are, what background you're from, or where you are in the country, you know, what accent you have, as soon as you put on that uniform and you have your role on, everybody knows what your job is on the ship. Mm. Um, and so there's never any questions or any biases or any perceptions because they know you're there and you've got that uniform, which means you've passed all the qualifications, and you've got the training you needed to be there. And everybody knows, particularly on a ship at sea, uh, what job they play. So, you know, and what part they do to make that ship operational. So it's not always about the people who are in the operations room who may be operating the ship, you know, all the way uh, from the chefs, you know, the engineers in the engine rooms, everybody has a part to play to make that whole ship, as you know, a systems engineer, you know, that whole ship, including the people in it, are the system. 
And in exactly the same way you have with any system, any part of that breaks, any person doesn't do their job. Um, the whole ship breaks in a, mm. in a way. So um, actually being a woman in the Navy, you didn't notice. Saying that, it did have their challenges. You know, I joined women had only started going to sea in 93. I joined in 95. All, you know, all male ships were still quite common. And there were very, very few females on ships and that part was still a bit you know relatively new and people were still adjusting to having women in the crew and women on on ships and especially being a a young officer at the time and it it had its there there was just more it was noticeable and you were you know one of the few so everybody knew who you were but you obviously didn't know who everyone else was we've asked this on a on a number of podcast previously so we'll get your your take on it as well um how do you manage to to get the most out of people that you've you know have been doing it longer than you probably know it better than you potentially think you're just a an annoying person who tells them what to do Um, you're speaking from experience alex yeah yeah (laughs) um uh how, how how do you get the best out of them what what would be your tips oh i think the key part is respect you know, absolutely respecting who you work with, what they bring to the party, you know, spending time coming into any new team, whatever level you're at, to actually understand who the people in the team are, why they're in the team, what are they bringing to that party, because everybody is there for a reason and has a part to contribute um, and has an element to bring into it and really understanding what is that element and how they think that then engenders that respect to say, okay, I understand, you know, this is your piece of the jigsaw and I'm bringing this piece of the jigsaw and together as a team, you know, we, we can make this all be the big picture if I can carry on with that analogy. So definitely respect, humility, um, particularly if you're putting in the leadership position, as I said before, that does not make you um, the person who knows it all or is in charge or barking orders. Um, part of leading is knowing when you need to step forward because there's confusion over what to do next and when you need to stand back um, and let the team work through the problem and work out what needs to happen next. So you need that humility as well. From um, obviously what you're saying um, and we're talking about like leadership, um, what would you say from like as a student point of view, what would you say that students would have to kind of try and work towards before they leave university? We we see a lot um, of people, we talk about like our industries um, and we talk about like leadership and like what it is to manage a team. But what do students, because nowadays it's incredibly competitive. I even remember applying to base systems, I got rejected outright. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, no hard feelings, obviously. I was just uh, say, try again now. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, and uh, what I'm saying is, is what kind of things do industries expect of students back, um, like back when they're students, not when they're already got the job? What What do we need to do? Well, what do they need to do to pursue a career in base systems, Airbus? What What is the qualities that you, as companies, look for? I think it very much depends on what kind of role you're looking for, because there's such a range. Mm-hmm. You know. 800 engineers are in my team and some of them are you know working in software development teams and actually mm-hmm. I just want to be a right good code good quality mm-hmm. um, that works every time and that's you know and that's what I'm asking for or hardware engineers or whatever it is you just be able to do your job 
but do your job in an open-minded way you know mm-hmm. it's never about coming in and, and writing you know I've got 100 lines of code I'm just going to write it um particularly when you're running a business the important thing is to, to have people who think about not just how am I answering the question I've been set but how do I answer the question I've been set but also leave it open to whatever's needed in the future yeah. You know, especially in my business, ships are in service for 20, 30 years. You know, the, the new aircraft carriers we've just built will be in service for 50 years. So whatever the teams are doing and developing isn't just going to need to exist and work for today. It's going to need to be able to exist and work in 30 years' time when who knows what the world is going to be like and what kind of things the ships are going to need to be doing. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be that open-mindedness, I think, for any engineer um, so that's the, the what I'd call the technical job. I think then the other part is that then where do you want to go and what's your career path? Because again, as an engineer, you have so many different routes. You know, do you want to be the, the sort of deep specialist technologist route? Do you want to lead into en- engineering leadership and be a sort of chief engineer, a design authority? Do you want to use engineering to move into engineering management and more general management? And then I think then when we're looking at interviewing people, um, they might not know themselves, but certainly I look to say, well, actually, where would they be and where do I have the need? You know, is this someone that could be a good baseline engineer, but then could develop into engineering management? Is this someone who's actually really good technically and I'd like to put up the chief engineering or cross between them? You know, it's mm-hmm. never a single path. It's never, I hate the word ladder because it implies a sort of single track. Yeah. Um, it's more of a rock climbing wall. <laughs> well, I say I, I call it a labyrinth because even though the climbing wall, you know, you see, you still end up with dead ends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're completely right. What do you think the um, challenges are then for the future of engineers? What do you think the industries and businesses at the moment? It's greatest challenges. We have a lot of people talking about net zero at the moment. We have um, a lot of people with technical challenges. What's your opinion on that kind of situation? So I think there's a lot of, I mean, people say a lot about, you know, the pace of technology and the pace of evolution. But if you think over the last hundred years, that's been going on, you know, where we were hundred years ago, um, you know, roaring twenties and and what's changed since then and the industrial revolution, the technology revolution. So I think we've been living through that for a while. I think what will change for engineering in terms of careers is more the breadth of things you know certainly from when I started and you you know there were there were lots and lots of different engineering disciplines but then you can apply them in different domains but you're pretty much mechanical or electrical or systems or you know there were some core things um I think now it's much much more broader than that yeah there's agriculture tech as well now and exactly exactly and I think that the challenge will be um kind of working out how the crossovers between engineering and the other, let's call it STEM type disciplines, you know, architecture's becoming yeah. more engineering oriented, you know, what's yeah. the, yeah, that sort of thing, you know. Hmm. And all those kind of you say net zero, you know, where's computer science, is that really yeah. engineering? You know, if you're doing computing and they don't see it that way, I think that will be the challenge. There might be a bit of an identity crisis for engineering. To find the overlap. To say, actually, now that everything is about technology, where does engineering sit? Yeah. In episode three, actually, we spoke to Adam Wood, who who mentioned there's there's a new movement called STEAM, which brings Mm. the the arts Arts. into, into that 
that sphere, which is, I think is is really important because engineers are good, but almost because they're engineers, they can't think of everything. I'm rubbish at design as well. I've been trying to do my <laughs> third year projects look like boxes. Honestly, <laughs> I look at some people who've done design courses and engineering and their stuff looks absolutely innovation top tier. Um, I really do think that you need but, to involve. Yeah, go on. But, but I think it's not just about the creativity as in, you know, can you draw something better than some stick figures? To me, the A in STEAM is more about the, the arts as in the, the collaborative, creative aspects of it. Mm-hmm. So it's not whether you can draw. You go back to the future of engineering will be so many more disciplines and so many different things. It means the teams will be much, much more diverse. And therefore, to be able to communicate, you know, what are you doing mm-hmm. as your you know, software engineer to the hardware engineer or to the systems engineer you need to be able to be artistic in a way, whether you end up drawing it with smart art in PowerPoint or yeah. whether you get a pen on a whiteboard or whatever your chosen medium of communication, you need to be able to articulate yeah. what that vision is because you'll be working with a completely diver- more diverse team that won't have done had the same background as mm-hmm. you and they won't have studied the same thing as you or applied it in the same way as you. Silver Fox proudly supports engineers with all their cable, wire and pipe labelling requirements. The Fox in a Box thermal printer has the ability to print a whole range of thermal labels with one software, one printer and one ribbon, saving loads of time for the engineers out there in the field. For more information, contact sales at silverfox.co.uk or call on plus 44 So going back to, to the Royal Navy... Or, or after the Royal Navy, you left and took a small sabbatical, I believe, and went and sailed the world. I did. Where Where did you go? Uh, so, yeah, when I uh, left the Navy and my husband and I bought a small yacht uh, and went sailing around the world and we sailed from Portsmouth uh, on the south coast of the UK to Sydney, Australia. So not quite all the way around. But you must have come back though, no? We flew back. Oh, you flew back. So presumably you stopped off in plenty of places between here and Australia. We did, we did, yeah. We took 22 months, um, which is all we had time and money for, hence the sort of halfway. Um, And we did what's called the trade winds route. So you'll think back to the days of... um, the steam clippers cutting across, we effectively followed uh, the winds. So we went from the UK down the coast of Spain, Portugal, Canary Islands. Uh, we did the west coast of Africa, went up the Gambia River as far as we could uh, until some electrical cables meant we could go no further because otherwise our mast would get <laughs> in the way. Um, Cape just, Verde. Just completely take the whole Gambia yeah. off offline. Well, I mean, it turns out that apparently in Africa, they tension uh, electrical overhead cables by by hand. Uh, So they get as much tension as they can. And there were two pylons either side of the river and they tensioned the cable. And we were sort of going down the river and looking up and saying, will we get under that or not? And in the end decided it wasn't worth risking it. Uh, So that that was as far as we went. Uh, But it was still quite quite a way into the Gambia, uh, which was a fascinating place to sail. And then across the Atlantic, uh, through the Caribbean, um, 
through the across the Panama Canal, which was an amazing. I mean, talk about engineering feats, absolutely amazing. Yeah. Uh, going through the Panama Canal and just seeing uh, the incredible, incredible engineering that went on to create that, uh, and then across the Pacific, so Galapagos, French Polynesia, New Caledonia to Australia. Say across the Pacific, uh, people don't realise how big the world is when you say the bit from. Panama to the Galapagos was further than Cape Verde to the Caribbean. Wow. Yeah, the Pacific Ocean is massive. It's huge. So where, where was your favourite place to stop then? Where was my favourite place to stop? Uh, Madeira, close to home. Madeira was amazing. Never been to Madeira before as a volcanic island. Hmm. Again, the engineering um, of, because uh, there's no flat there's nowhere flat in Madeira. There's only two directions in Madeira, up and down, um, which means they have no uh, no real reservoirs or lakes. So mm. this amazing system of levees to collect the water as it falls on the mountains wow. to bring water down to the villages, um, which is really clever. Panama Canal is a theme coming here about places to go, definitely. Yeah. Uh, the Panama Canal, not just because we st- we were in a James Bond film while we were in Panama, but also going through. Oh, that, that's a claim to fame. <laughs> to be in a James Bond film. Which one? So people can go and check it out. Quantum of Solace. Quantum of Solace. Oh, that's there a good. Go. That's with Mads, Mads Mikkelsen. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, so the whole boat chase scene, you know, when he's on the rib and the baddies are following him. I yeah. think it's supposed to be Colombia, maybe. Mm. Uh, but it's not. It's actually in Panama, in Cologne, um, and they were filming that for the two weeks we were there. So we were cool. paid a hundred pounds a day to be extras in the James Bond film. Wow, you actually paid. You'll for see it. all the boats. You see all the boats are anchor when they're running around. One of those is our boat. Wow. I was I was actually just quite curious with your trip. What would you say was the spark of your trip? Why would why would you just go off and go ah twenty twenty two <laughs> twenty two months ah why not? <laughs> was it so, did you plan twenty two months or or did it just well we planned being... we planned two years yeah um so I met my husband in the navy and in she he um. For the first few years we were together, obviously before we were married, uh, we were literally like ships that pass in the night. Um, uh, I'd be off at sea on one ship, he'd be off on another. And even when we had shore jobs, you know, I was working in Bristol, he was working in Newcastle, and we had a house on the south coast. So we had a very uh, sort of distance, long distance relationship. Uh, and I think there came a point now lives where we're sort of going, well, you know, is this going to carry on? And what kind of life mm. together do we want to have? Um, or do you know is this what we're going to commit to for the rest of our lives and we start thinking about children and all that sort of thing and we said actually maybe this isn't how we want to be kind of being apart all the time and if we do want to have children um, we definitely want to end up with one of us always being sort of on our own so we said well fine we'll leave and we'll try and have a, a different life together but the, the deal was if we left we have one last, well I don't want to say one last one song but you know a bit of fun before we get into real life and proper jobs and children and everything else so this was the deal so so the real question is when you got on a 22 month journey with your husband after being so much long distance did you attempt throwing overboard at least once because i can imagine from going long distance and then going to a little boat and then going okay we're gonna sail 20 22 months 
we're stuck together, let's go. I can imagine you must have tried to throw him overboard at least once. So and <laughs> our friends um, threw us a big leaving party when we left. Um, and they did a whole load of leaving gifts and things like that. And one of them were taking bets. Uh, and the bets were we'd either be pregnant by Gibraltar, uh, divorced by Gibraltar or pregnant by New Zealand with the, uh, <laughs> with, with the sort of bets that they were taking. Yes, yeah, so, so absolutely our friends were like, what the hell are you doing? And we'll be uh, divorced. At least there was no lost at sea bet. There, there was no, no lost at sea bet. So there was a lot of faith yeah. in you as yeah, well. There was a lot of faith in your sailing abilities. Yeah, exactly. But actually, you know, to kind of go back, bring it back to the podcast and lessons, you know, the um, in terms of an adventure and doing things, you know, being together, going to what I was saying about the Navy, two of you on a boat, on your own, completely reliant on each other uh, for safety, you know, watch keeping opposite each other and, and doing things together. You, we did find that we settled into the things that we were good at. So uh, James, my husband, always likes it, despite the fact that I'm the engineer, you know, the chartered engineer, he was the one who always looked after the engine mm. and qualified it because I'd already said I'm completely rubbish at mechanical engineering. So, you know, the engine and that sort of aspect were his job, um, whereas I had other jobs on board to do the navigation or, or you know, working out where we were going to go and what we were going to stay and things like that. So, again, we did find that a lot of the things we'd learned through our time in the Navy applied, not that we were running it like a Navy ship's. But just the how do you work together? How do you work out what are you each good at and what do you do? And how do you divide the jobs between you? You know, and who does what um, really helped. Do you think that that's uh, not to be deep or anything, but like a life philosophy in terms of you find your groove eventually? Like, because I feel, um, as you said that, as in you obviously didn't have like an exact plan how to run this, but you kind of just fell into the grooves of what you're good at and that can be applied to people who are currently looking for jobs and stuff like that. What What's your opinion on that? What's your I thoughts? I think that's spot on. I think absolutely. And I love that description. I'm going to use it more. Find the groove. <laughs> because we did have a, we, you know, we kind of said, how would we talk? Even watch keeping, you know, initially in the Navy, it's very rigid and you do these watches and you rotate it around. But mm. actually we found out that um, he he's a night owl and I'm an early bird. You know, I get mm. up early and I have absolutely no problem. Whereas he can stay up till midnight you know, me by nine o'clock, I'm ready for bed. So we said, well, actually, there's no point in rotating the watches because he's awake in the evenings and I'm exhausted, mm -hmm. whereas I'm perfectly fine to be awake at sunrise. So we ended up just working it that routine because what was the point in pushing it? And yes, you would think, oh, it seems fairer um, mm. to swap between us. But we found that that didn't work for us. Yeah, no. I so so we, we just did it what worked better for us and what fitted into our own rhythm and ways of working and we did that with a lot of things you mentioned how how regimented uh, the navy is and i'm sure the entire military would would be the same but what was it like leaving that regimented life and then effectively having to go completely the other way and almost make your own regiment up yeah to be honest you know you're going on the adventure of a lifetime we'd been planning it for five years it was a it was a relief to be on, on, on the seas and, and getting going and getting out there. Um, and initially, it was obviously a bit scary. You know, this is really us. I don't think we really noticed it until we left Europe. Mm. Um, but once you leave Europe, then you sort of realize, gosh, we really are going somewhere now. But you yeah, meet what, so many what, people, you end up, it, it's like you here now, you meet so many other people doing 
the same thing and heading the same way or have been doing it, then you end up, much like you do now, you end up in this bubble where everybody you see are doing it and everybody is yeah. going the same way. And everyone, so, you, so it, it just feels normal because mm. uh, you're talking mm. to lots of people who are all doing it. Are you still in contact with anyone that you met on your journey? Yes, yeah, quite a few people. Just to uh, circle back to the uh, engineering standpoints, I just wanted to kind of talk about, we, we, I keep asking you about advice and identities of engineering and all like that, um, but obviously you've, you mentor um, young women and I just wanted to ask, is that a thing that you do as a uh, peer-to-peer or do you have a, a platform where you are on and you talk to these people or is it just person-to-person, talk to the parents, then how does that work for you? So it's a mixture. I am a lot of the time the people I mentor are ones who either people I know have recommended to them and said look you know we think you should talk to someone like Camille and she'll help with things sometimes it is more formal um, that I'll join either through an institution or an organization that will set up a mentoring scheme put my name down and get matched mm-hmm. so but but nearly always it's about the relationship Mm-hmm. Um, that you end up making with a mentee and, and you know it's never never try and force it never say because we've been matched always say you yeah. know let's have a first meeting let's have a coffee let's have a chat let's see if we click because a mentoring relationship is all about do you get on and feel comfortable talking and being open with yeah. that person not I just you know I want to get to know that person better you know it can never be about that it, can, it should always be about do you connect? Is there someone yeah. I'm willing to listen to? Um, and if that happens, then I leave it up to the mentee to then sort of drive the conversations and say, mm-hmm. what do they need help with? So do you suggest other kids to kind of seek out a mentor when they're pursuing their qualifications and their um, stuff like that, if they know family or through an institution? If you can name any, that would be good also. Um, but also, I kind of want to know what's your drive for it? Because as much as we say that people are kind and everything, but not many people can sit, do a director job, be in the Navy, and then go out and say, okay, on top of all of this, I'm going to go volunteer for and help other people as well. What's your drive as well to that? Uh, so lots of questions there. <laughs> uh, so I think it is definitely helpful to have a mentor, whether it's someone you formally call a mentor, or whether someone, it's just someone you can go and, just ask and say, I'm thinking mm-hmm. of doing this, I'm thinking of doing that. Most of the time I find that the people know the answer, but just haven't been able to work it out in their own head. And they're mm-hmm. actually talking to someone else. Most of what I do as a mentor is listen, mm-hmm. which means the person I'm talking to actually knows what, what they, they want. need to do. Yeah. But yeah. having somebody else to voice it to, you know, and it's fascinating watching or listening to people kind of work through in describing the problem to me, they then describe their solution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then they suddenly go, Oh, you know, and you go, well, there you go. That's what you need to do. Um, And, and so I think having a mentor is helpful just because sometimes voicing things helps you sort out your thoughts. Um, And in terms of things, I think all, Nearly all the institutions, so the IET obviously has a mentoring scheme. Yeah. In defense, the Women in Defense organization has one. Um, yeah, I think WISE do. Um, yeah, it, mm. Nearly all organizations have mentoring schemes. 
if, if you can't find someone. I was even involved in one um, called Be the Business, where it was looking for people doing sort of business peer-to-peer mentoring oh, okay. to help other business leaders, you know, setting up companies or starting mm. up or trying to work out, um, which I think is fantastic. In terms Definitely. of, you know, I never realised how much how many common problems there may be, you know, from defense to a completely different set, you know, the food industry. But actually, when you talk to people, the, the leadership problems or the business problems are the same. It might be a different context, but it's the same. Yeah, 100%. It is, it is a really useful to get that different perspective, see what blind spots you've got. So I would definitely mm. recommend it. In terms of what do I get out of it? I think giving something back, I had mm-hmm. a lot of brilliant mentors through my career that helped me when I felt lost confused didn't know where i was going what was going on um or even told me to you know pull my socks up and sort myself out or whatever it's needed so there's definitely an element of paying it forward mm. i think the other piece is i always learn something yeah you know so it's always something just even talking to them talking through the you know nearly always the conversations are all about actually you know i've got that same problem or i had that and and you end up again, you know, talking through a problem together. So quite often they might be helping me as well. And I and yeah. I learn something out of it in the same way. Just, good answer. <laughs> Very good answer. <laughs> ten out of ten. Just just going back to, to some an article you've already done, Amelia, in Wombat, oh, which yes. I believe is Woman in Combat. It is. Um it's a fantastic name. Um you mentioned You've obviously got now got a family and an extremely successful career. How how do you balance it? How, yeah. It's a tough I know it's a tough one. No, it's not. I um so I'll start a bit like ladder. I will keep pushing back on you and saying I don't actually like the work because balance implies scales and implies when one thing is up, the other thing is down and you're ignoring it. Um and I don't like that term because to me my work and my family and my home life or whatever are all part of the whole of who I am and my life. And it's not mm-hmm. one or the other. It's just part of what I've chosen to do with my life. The balance is more about where I'm spending my time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll take the morning off to go to an assembly with my daughter or do sports day mm-hmm. or whatever, because that's what's important to me at that time. And sometimes I'll go away with work for three days at a time, you know, because yeah. that's what's important because that's where I'm needed. Mm. But it's always my choice yeah. of what I'm prioritizing and how I am spending it and what feels, you know, the most effective mm. thing mm. or what's important to me at that time. So it is a balance, but not not in that way of, mm. you know, I've spent a long time fighting with the guilt Mm. which is what the balance implies of saying, if I'm here and if I'm away for three days, I'm not there for my children. Or if I'm here for my children, all these emails are clogging up. And it's just not healthy Mm. having that guilt of that balance. So the easiest thing I found for me is to go, it is my choice. I have chosen to be here at this sports day or I have chosen to go away with work or to work late tonight because I will then make up for it or I will do this Mm. later or you know, I'll, I'll balance it that so it's way. like a puzzle instead of a balance, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, you get out and well, I certainly found I was just being consumed by the guilt of, of being being a rubbish parent or being rubbish at my job, you know, and I could never do both. And it's just not healthy. I think that's what, what the saying is now, isn't it? In the moment, you know, yeah. living life for the moment and being yeah. present. 
you know, there's nothing worse than sitting through an, you know, an assembly and your child's getting an award, but all you're thinking about is the emails in the office because what, what's the point in you being there? Do you think a lot of engineers have that trouble? Do you think that we inherently think that we've got to balance our work life instead of accepting what we have and be in the moment? I don't actually. I think engineers are better than other professions because we're used to putting things in boxes. <laughs> okay, I yeah. get that. I actually think engineers cope better mm-hmm. because we're used to sort of compartmentalizing problems yeah. and saying, actually, I will break this down into what I can manage and I will tackle what's One right step for at me a now time and I might leave yeah. something else for later or I might give that off. And I think, because we think in that way, I actually think from what I've seen said from engineers that we find it easier to compartmentalize and say, right yeah. now I'm here and I'm in the office and I'm present and this is what I'm doing. Yeah. Point one to engineering, anyone who's thinking about engineering, you know, <laughs> we're better than most as I, as you, you just heard it here. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm <being> engineer. <laughs> Do you think that we'll call it a puzzle has got easier in recent times? I, yes. I mean, both in the, it, it, this decade, but also in the lot, very recent you know, last two years. We won't mention it in case people are listening in the the very far future. I think there's definitely more awareness of it. You know, certainly when I, you know, had my son, he's 12 now, uh, flexible working existed and that sort of thing, but it was definitely expected that you would work, and I did work part-time. But then I did, you know, basically I did a five-day job in four days. And Mm. there was no question of me dropping my workload Mm. Um, because, you know, even though I was effectively only working four days and four short days of that to be around for him, I think now there's just a lot more awareness of that balancing that people are doing. And particularly, Mm. you know, through the word that we shan't say, the big C, um, (laughs) as we were in people's homes and people didn't have the childcare they would normally rely on or whatever, men and women, you know, people in my team who... You know, would leave at half past two to go and do the school run and, and sort of say, well, I'll be back online at three. And there's never any question asked. So I think people are a lot, lot more accepting of caring responsibility in general, not just children, because don't forget it, that a lot of people care for others yeah, mm-hmm. um, and, and not just children. And I think for us all to be more tolerant of that in a workplace is, is brilliant. And I'm glad to have seen that change ideally if you had the choice and i know maybe they'll never hear this but uh being a parent would you want your kids to be engineers or are you i know that you do oh i want the best for them but like if you could if you could just turn the dial and be like for them to be engineers (laughs) i i would absolutely no i'll I'll front out i've got a boy and a girl Mm -hmm. um we won't get into how frustrated i am by the difference in how they're each treated um and, and, you know, the, mm. how engineering is presented to both of them, because it is frustrating. There are differences. Mm. I would love them both to, if not be engineers, but be in something like that. The technical the background creative, kind of thing. Creative with a sense of purpose. Yeah. Um, that, that, you know, is about giving something back, giving of yourself to create something. Yeah. But obviously it is completely up to them. The best advice I've been given, which is one I do pass on, is um, always, well, always say yes to things when opportunity presents itself, even if you're not sure, but also have the confidence to say no. 
which is a kind of hard one because you hear lots of people saying, say yes, jump at opportunities. But actually, sometimes you need quite a lot of courage to say, actually, no, I don't think it's for me. Going back to what you were saying, Connor, about finding your groove. Yeah. There are some things that you would say, this does sound fantastic, but But it's just not for me. And I won't, whilst it would be amazing for someone else, I would not be good at that because it's not in my groove. Has that ever happened to you then in your um, in your work experience or even in your academic life? Yes, it? yes, a few times. There was one where it was the right decision and one where it was the wrong decision. Uh, mm. And I was proved right. I mean, obviously, there was one about uh, dropping mechanical engineering and picking computers. <laughs> you know, computers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I kind of went, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think okay, that's everyone's right that. decision, in my opinion. And it ended up being <laughs> the right decision. But at the time, I could have gone, no, no way. What yeah. do I know about computing? Yeah. Um, when I was in the Navy, actually, they were looking to broaden me out of engineering and wanted to be uh, me to go and be a flag lieutenant, which mm. is a sort of uh, helping out an, an admiral in charge. And I was sort of adamant. And I said, no, I mm. want to be an engineer. I want to get my chart. I was just about to get chartered. Um, and I did say no and had to go in front of the admiral and explain why I didn't want to go and work in his office, which was terrifying. Yeah. But, you know, I, I said, actually, you know, I'm one job away from being chartered. And if I come and do this, mm. I won't get my chartered status. So, you know, it's things like that. And and yet now in BAE, again, I had that call of kind of be chief of staff. So I seem to always be getting these um, offers to our CEO. And I, I yeah. said the same thing. No way. No. You know, I'm an engineer. What do I want to do? Um, and the CEO called me in and said, no, I really think you should do this job. Uh, and I did it. And I had a brilliant year doing it so I was completely wrong yeah. by saying no and they said no you really really should do it so we'll be fine and I said no because of childcare and the travel and I came up with a million excuses about why it was completely the wrong job for me to be chief of staff to the CEO but actually it was absolutely the right thing and I learned so much from that job. Amelia thank you so much for your time it has been fantastic talking to you. Hopefully, um, Fiona Clark, episode seven, will listen and she'll know why you connected with her. Thanks for sharing your views on STEM and STEAM and also your top tips for engineers looking to take that jump. Uh, thank, thank you. Thank you very much. So it has been a real pleasure. Um, I, I will probably end up finding a connection. You'll probably see it in your inbox um, after, after this podcast. I'll add you on LinkedIn. <laughs> That would be delightful. Thanks, thanks for chatting with me. It's, Thank been, really, you so it's much. been really fun talking to you both. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engineering Stories podcast. We hope it's given you some insight into another area of engineering. If you're still here at this point, we must be doing something right. So stay tuned for the next guest. And in the meantime, share this episode with your friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe.